0: You gotta handle the rock with flaring rhythm if you wanna be judged on wood, grain and concrete courts in New York. This ain't no nickel and dime. It's dribbling dimes where scoring never looked this good. I guarantee it. But was your reputation built from the playground up? Or did you call next and they took that ish? All cause you weren't as fast as police and ambulance sirens? Or as loud as Mr. Softy Ice Cream? No. You see, this is New York City hoops in prime time. As beautiful as the skyline, it's dribbling dime. What's up everybody? I'm sitting in a lavish law firm, ladies and gentlemen. Um, If you could see the views up in this piece, uh, they're breathtaking. I'm overlooking the Chrysler building over here behind me. And uh, I'm sitting with a gentleman who is a product of Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Um, He's played collegiately at Boston College for a cup of coffee, and we'll get into the reasons why in a moment. Uh, He's a former chief of the organized crime strike force in the Eastern District. In his career, he's prosecuted several corrupt politicians, labor union officials, the heads of four of the five New York Mafia families. Um, He's acted in several films. Many have seen him and his most notable one, uh, Goodfellas, alongside Robert De Niro, Lorraine Bracco, and Ray Liotta. And now he's senior counsel here at Deckard uh, Law Firm, uh, international law firm, I should say. Let me not small change him. With us today is Mr. Edward McDonald.
1: Hey, Manny. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> yeah. for having me. <laughs> so,
0: I um, and by the way, thank you to Rich Kosick, uh, our, our former guest here on the show, uh, for putting us in touch. Um, you know, when, when he mentioned you, he kind of tried to sell you to me in, in a way because, you know, because you're coming from the legal perspective. I guess for him, it was kind of a long shot for what we do here. And as soon as he said... Uh, attorney play ball. I didn't care what else came out of his mouth. Right. Uh, And then I start to understand more about your involvement in certain things. And we'll get into the the Boston point shaving scandal from back in the day. Um, And I was like, yeah, man, I would just love to kick it with this guy regardless. You know, (laughs) Um, so I appreciate you really making the time. Um, I know you're a very busy person litigating like crazy. Um, Tell me, what would you deem worthwhile stories to share?
1: Yeah, well, the most most exciting and the most uh, significant things I've done in my life I, and professionally uh, was the, was uh, really the time I spent when I was the federal prosecutor. I worked for the United States Justice Department in Brooklyn, yep. I was the, and I became the head of the Federal Organized Crime Strike Force for the Eastern District, which is Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island, Staten Island, but really we had jurisdiction for the entire city. Mm-hmm. And um, we had the responsibility for prosecuting the five families, the five mafia families, and we tried to get their most significant members and most significant leaders in those families. And, um, you know, it it was the kind of thing where I was in the right place at the right time where a lot of things fell in my lap. We had good relationships with the FBI and the other investigative agencies, and they brought a lot of really interesting and noteworthy cases to us. You know, we we handled, I was involved uh, intimately in the Abscam prosecutions. Tell us a
0: little bit about Abscam, because I don't recall it very well.
1: Okay, Abscam was a case, uh, was an investigation in the late 1970s that came to fruition in uh, 1980, 1981, and um, uh, today you probably wouldn't be able to do it because everyone is politically correct, but <laughs> back in the day, the FBI created a an undercover scenario uh, involving a, uh, a fictitious Arab sheikh There was actually an FBI agent who occasionally was called out uh, to appear as, a, as an Arab sheikh, but he was, an, he was an FBI agent okay. from Cleveland who, who spoke Arabic. <laughs> and the idea was that the Arab sheikh had you know, gazillions of dollars that he wanted to invest in the United States, and he wanted to have uh, political people, you know, politicians, who would be beholden to him and would help him in the event that there was a revolution in his country and, and he wanted to come and, and live in the United States and invest money in the United States. So with that in mind, the FBI agents and an undercover operative who was a con man and a, you know, a street guy, mm-hmm. um, were, we went out and they started meeting people. And one thing led to another. And uh, at the end of the case, we were able to um, uh, bring cases against uh, seven congressmen, and excuse me, six congressmen and the United States Senator from New Jersey, Harrison Williams. So I was involved in Brooklyn in prosecuting four of the congressmen. And uh, Harrison Williams was the, uh, as I said, he was the senator in New Jersey. I tried that case. It was a It was a very noteworthy case back in 1980. It was very exciting and, uh, you know, it was, it was unimaginable the amount of, of notoriety corruption. and publicity we had. And the, the corruption that we encountered uh, on a grand scale in Washington and in the New York metropolitan area was, was really something else. And, uh, you know, it was satisfying, exciting working on those cases. It was a little outside of our bailiwick. We were supposed to be prosecuting mafia cases, mm-hmm. but this was something that sort of fell into our laps. Subsequently, I ended up a few years later, after, we, after I became Strike Force Chief. Uh, We had an an organized crime case that led to the uh, uh, prosecution of a uh, congressman from the Bronx named Mario Biaggi and uh, the Brooklyn Democratic boss Mead Esposito and it was hmm. a corruption case involving bribery and uh, I prosecuted that case in 1987. And so they were they were probably two of the most they were two of the most significant cases I handled. Um, but I also handled um, as offshoots of, of mafia investigations of the Lufthansa robbery case, I prosecuted the, the Lufthansa employee, it was the inside man there mm-hmm. and in the course of investigating that case and working with the fbi we turned uh, henry hill into a cooperating witness i sp- Witness, I sponsored him for the Witness Protection Program. And he um, cooperated and, among other things, led us to the Boston College point shaving case, which. Uh, um, he was. The, okay. He When we were debriefing him, he began to talk about some of these exploits and places where he had been. And we said, Well, what were you doing in Boston? And he said he was fixing college basketball games. Um, and I said, Where? He said, BU, Boston University. And um, when I began to press him on it, he began to talk about one of the players that he said they had corrupted. And I realized that he was talking about Boston College. Mm. And then I said to myself, you know, the FBI agents are putting him up to this as a joke because I had gone to Boston College right. and <laughs> played freshman basketball for a little while. And I thought it was a joke. And I started saying, come on, just, just cut it out, cut it out. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and uh, lo and behold, it was true. And we did an intensive investigation with the FBI. And uh, we came up with the evidence that we needed to to prosecute the uh, the, the the mastermind of the Lufthansa robbery, Jimmy Burke, who we couldn't get for Lufthansa, and uh, the basketball player on the Boston College team and three gangsters, or, I mean, actually two gangsters and the brother of one of them. Right. And it was a, sort of a legitimate guy from Pittsburgh. And it was a very exciting case. And um, Hold on, hold on, hold on. on. There's, there's okay. You've just said a lot
0: of interesting things. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I know for you it's probably old hat now because you've lived it. But um, so I, I get the connection between – the mafia, uh, the New York-based mafia uh, cases that you were dealing with, the Lufthansa one in particular. Um, So Henry Hill plays a pivotal role in arguably, say, like in your career, right? Because there's a connection from Henry Hill to the the B.C. uh, point shaving. There's also a connection from him into your acting forays, basically, right? Right. Um, So he becomes a pretty interesting character, generally speaking, as it connects all those dots. But you mentioned, and you kind of just flashed this real fast, you played basketball at BC. Right. So, so before we get into point shaving, I want to understand what were the events that actually led you to end up playing, and then we'll talk about what happened afterwards. Right. So you mentioned Zavarian as the high school you attended, right. and you played ball there. When you walked into Zavarian, what, were you playing freshman basketball? Yeah. Okay. You but
1: first of all, I want to make it clear yeah. that when I played basketball at Boston College, I played two games my freshman year. I listen, made the freshman team. Listen. And, listen. And, let me, and
0: Let me explain something to you, sir. Yeah. The fact that you achieved getting on that floor as part of that team to me is a big deal. Okay. So yeah, we're not going to. You're a humble, dude. Not a humble, dude. Well, I don't know. Maybe you are. But you're you're trying to undersell what I think is still a pretty prestigious kind of situation, especially at at that level of of college basketball. Right. Yeah. Um, don't give it away yet. I want to know why you've only played two games, but but you you grew up playing.
1: Yeah, I I grew up in Bay Ridge yep. and in. Uh, uh I went to grammar school at the largest uh, school, the largest Catholic school in Brooklyn and Queens, in the, the Diocese of Brooklyn. And um, we had uh, Franciscan brothers who came in when I was in the seventh grade, and they were very active in running a great sports program. And basketball was king. I mean, basketball was, uh, uh, you know, it was an addiction for many of the kids in the neighborhood. We had basketball courts and parks, you know, in Bay Ridge. And uh, we had the schoolyard at our, at, at our Lady of Angels where everyone was playing. And when I was, you know, I played a little bit when I was in fourth and fifth grade. I really didn't know what I was doing. But when I was in the sixth grade, I tried out for the seventh grade team. And I was fortunate enough to make the team. I was the only sixth grader to make the seventh grade team. And Why why do you think that was? Because the kid who lived across the street from me was really good. And he was in the seventh grade. And he basically told the coach he thought I was good. And (laughs) he said I was better than I really was. (laughs) He he told you. Because there were a couple of kids in my class, in in the sixth grade class, who probably were better than I was. Okay. And... And I made the team but so that got me addicted to it once I made the team you know I was so excited we were playing all over Brooklyn and uh, um, uh, so I, I the next year I went back and I was on the 7th grade team and I was one of the starters I was one of the best players on the team and we had a good team it wasn't a great team but the following year we uh, when I was on the 8th grade team we had a fabulous team hmm. we had uh, um, Danny Knee was the star player Danny uh, later uh, he played for Power Memorial with, yeah. uh, with the well said into Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and he was a great, you know, high school basketball player, uh, played at Marquette, and then um, later, and then he went into the service, but it, ultimately he ended up as the, uh, um, he was a coach at Ohio University, and uh, coached for, I think, about 15 years at the University of Nebraska, and later uh, Duquesne, and was really a big-time college coach, mm-hmm. and also in our class was Pete Gillen. Pete Gillen did not make the team. Him I'm not, not familiar with, okay, but I'll tell you who Pete yeah, Gillen is. Pete, Pete was the... Um, um, uh, he played for Fairfield. He played three okay. years at Fairfield. Now, he got cut from our eighth grade team and he ended up playing college, college basketball, basketball as a varsity for three player at Fairfield for three years <laughs> and then got into coaching. Started in, in, in as a high school coach in Brooklyn, and then became an assistant in Notre Dame with Danny Knee. I mean, I think they, he replaced uh, Danny Knee as the assistant. Okay. It was sort of odd because they really didn't, I don't think they really knew each other right. because there was a difference in age, even though we were in the same class. And they happened to be from the same area. And they, they were from the same area. But, but Pete became, uh, Pete was the coach at Xavier in Ohio uh, became the coach at Providence and then really moved big time went to the ACC and he was the head coach at the uh, University of Virginia for probably 10 12 years and he does some announcing now and he's he's still in the game he's still uh, he's he still, must
0: have coached my my buddy Majestic Map I want to say at Virginia I think he did I think yeah, he did that's coach the Virginia. name now he, starts ringing a bell Yeah he had okay. a
1: coach uh, he had an assistant named Bobby Gonzalez <laughs> yes uh, who for a while I think was the coach at um, at Rice High School Uh, in in Manhattan, up in Harlem. Is he still coaching high school? I I don't know what he's doing. I'm not sure what he's doing now. He coached in Manhattan for a while. Okay. And uh, but Pete had a really great run, and I'm sure he could have coached again. But when he finished up at at, at UVA, uh, he had a couple of great years down there. You know, going to the NCA a few times and did very well. But um, when when he finished up at UVA, I guess he just that's it. You know, the pressure and everything. I'm, I don't I haven't talked to him about it, but you know, he stopped. Quick. But in our grammar school class, we had that's two big time coaches, so you can see. I mean, you know, basketball was sort of a mecca. It was it was different from it is the way it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, the joke is if we had any sort of any any diversity or any variety is we had one of the two, one of two kids were Italian, you know. Everybody had an Ah, MC or an O in front of the The whole (laughs) neighborhood was Irish. And a lot of the teams we played were all Irish and maybe a few Italian. So it was, uh, in those days, the CYO was very different. And so we actually we had a phenomenal team in the AC and we won the we won the Brooklyn championship. Mm-hmm. We actually lost to Queens for the diocesan championship. Oh, that sucked because there's um, a big
0: rivalry between those boroughs. Yeah.
1: And um, uh, so we were shocked that we lost because we were winning all these you know high school tournaments we were going to and we were, uh, we were doing pretty well. Um, kids got scholarships to a number of different schools, and um, the Zaverian did not give scholarships, but Zaverian was right in the parish, right in Our Lady of Angels, okay. and it was right literally a stone, I could crawl to the school, it was right mm-hmm. near my house. And so I went to went to Zaverian uh, with you know, some of my teammates from Our Lady of Angels and ended up playing for four years there. I played on a freshman team in, in the JV, I was probably, I thought I was, eh, It's it's funny how your mind may, might play tricks on you, but I think I was probably the leading scorer the second leading scorer as a freshman and in, uh, in on the JV um, how was your defense my defense was deplorable it was absolutely <laughs> horrible I had cement feet um I was not a, I was I was a mediocre passer uh couldn't handle the ball that well and to this day I contend that I was the best shooter in the city of New York in 1964 <laughs> I really I really could shoot based I could. on what Based on the fact that I knew it, knew- I, I could shoot, I'd shoot everybody. I mean, it was just I could really shoot, but I was so slow and and unathletic that I was a great. It's, it's I can, to this day I have no idea why I was a great and I'll say this with, 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 I have, and I think I'm humble because I, I was a lousy full court player obviously oh because you, you had would, more energy on the offensive side I could play <laughs> half court when I went to college and played with All-Americans I'd hold my own with the All-Americans at Boston College Interesting. At half on three on three yeah. but you put five guys out there ten guys on the court I just got lost because I was too slow and I just didn't have the athletic ability to yeah. sort of stay with it but I knew how to get open get a shot off on three on three so it, it, I still could never figure it out how I couldn't <laughs> (laughs) translated into becoming a better ball player on a full court game, probably because we played three on three all the time in the neighborhood and we didn't play much, you know, five on five full court. So I went to Zavarian. Uh, my junior year, I made I made the team, uh, but I didn't play much at all. My junior year, uh, we had a good team. We um, uh, this is back in the day when there were probably you know 40 Catholic schools in the Catholic high school league. Yeah. you know, the, it, it went from the the schools on Long Island and Nassau and Suffolk had, had at least in Nassau, you know, Shemehnot High School and some of the other schools out there were part of the Catholic league, the city league. Schools in Westchester, I think Stepanak and some yeah. of these other schools in Westchester were in were in the uh, in the Catholic League we probably had 40 maybe more teams you know so many of the Catholic schools have closed now but in those days it was probably the best league in the country and uh um, we, um, they, we we made the city playoffs, which was the fr- well, it was a new school. We only had it was only the third year we were open. Oh, okay. We went, we went to the uh, the city playoffs. Where we were, were
0: the playoffs held?
1: At Fordham. It was at, yeah, at Fordham, Fordham back then. Okay. Yeah. okay. And um, we had a playoff, and we played uh, Holy Cross, which is still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, we played. We played out in Queens. I think we played at Archbishop Malloy. We beat Holy Cross to uh, to make the playoffs. We were seeded 16th because, you know, we were good. We weren't that good. We right. were 40 teams maybe. but So when we made it, we were the 16th-ranked team. Holy Cross had a— uh, a pretty good size lefty jump shooter uh, who was a senior, and uh, you know, two, two years later I'm at Boston College, and I'm watching this guy playing for Providence. It was Mike Reardon who ended up playing for the Knicks and the Baltimore oh, Bullets. He yeah. was a, had a terrific pro career. I mean, he wasn't, a, you know, he's not in the Hall of Fame, but yeah, he but was he, an excellent he player. He held his own. But we beat him, we beat them to go to the playoffs, and then in the first round of the playoffs, we we played Power Memorial, Ooh. where um, uh, Kareem or Lou Alcindor, as he was then known, was a sophomore and was a first. First team All-American and. Uh uh, he was seven-two. You know, he was. It was just amazing to see somebody that tall. And um, Goliath. so we, they were the number one ranked team, and we were the number sixteenth ranked team. And the, the thing that really made it made him seem even bigger when they when they introduced the players. They introduced the first three guys, who all ended up becoming college players, mm-hmm. real good ball players. And then the the fourth guy was was their point guard, Oscar Sanchez, who must have been about five foot six. So he came out, and then they said, and starting at center. Oh. This, um, Oh, sophomore funny. Louis Alcindor, and because he's standing next to Oscar Sanchez, and made him look like he was eight feet course. tall. Do you think that was on purpose? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure that was on the purpose. intimidation yeah. factor. Yeah, that's pretty freaking smart. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, their coach Jack Donahue um, later went on to be the coach at Holy Cross, mm-hmm. and then for many years was the coach of the Canadian national team. So he oh. went from power to have a big time uh, career for himself as as a coach. And wow, I didn't um, know that. so he knew he really knew what he was doing. I mean, he was he was playing all the odds, and, and uh, so we tried to play the odds. We knew there was no way we could we could we could stay with them. We couldn't run with them. Our center. I was going to say, a, how tall was your center? Well, um, he was a guy by the name of Mike Daly, and he could jump. He was, I mean, an incredible jumper for an Irish guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was six two. We weighed about one hundred fifty five pounds, and he was covered career. Ouch. Uh, so we froze the ball. And uh, the score at halftime was eight to eight, and uh, <laughs> we ended up losing twenty-two to thirteen. And um, I mean, Kareem, it's not crazy. It's not it's, bad. It's bad, well, you know. I mean, it's a couple of breaks might have gone you know the other way, but uh, you know, I, if you look back on it, was sort of kind of cheating in a way. Yeah. you can't freeze the ball anymore with the right. you know the the, the, the clock. But uh, it was the only way we could we could compete with them. They were just so much better than we were. I mean, Danny Nee, who played with me in grammar school, was like the sixth or seventh man on their team and, you know, ended up getting recruited and played at Marquette. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, this is a guy. He was a junior, but still. I mean, he was the seventh man on the team. Yeah. and they were loaded. And they were loaded. They probably had 12 guys play college basketball, <whistles> you know, Division I college basketball. So, um, but it was a great experience to be able to say that, you know, I played against them. Well, I can't, truth be told, <laughs> I didn't play. I didn't get the game, but I was sitting on a bench. I was the layup. You line, watched against them. So I watched, yeah. So it was, uh, it was pretty exciting. And um, so the next year I went back, and and I was playing all summer, playing like a madman. I never stopped playing basketball. And why
0: was there anything in particular that, like, were you playing at a? Were you playing more frequently after that season, or was that just your normal level I, of play? My, our,
1: the, my best friends and I, I mean, my best friends were the guys who were on, on the teams mm-hmm. with me, going back to, to grammar school, and then they went to Zavarian. We played together at Zavarian. And so we're in my immediate little neighborhood, you know, the, the, within a stone's throw of my house, were two players on the team. You know, one was a junior, one was a um, um senior Brian Peters was you know, played with me for, you know since we were little kids mm-hmm. he ended up being a catcher he was a great baseball player and he was the starting catcher at Notre Dame he wow. didn't stay with basketball but he did stay with with baseball and he was a terrific terrific catcher um, and um so we um uh, i you know as i said i was i was foolishly i i played for most of the summer i was playing 3 on 3 i mean i just didn't have Um, the guidance that I probably should have had Mm -hmm. to getting in summer leagues and things like that. I was just playing in the neighborhood with just both my friends and other guys would come along and um, uh, I just probably I didn't develop the way I should have it wasn't lifting weight But you look at the way kids are training today and it was none of that it was just going out and having fun right but I I worked out I was shooting all the time (laughs) and um, I thought I was gonna have a great senior year I thought I'd be recruited and um, I knew I wasn't going to be playing at, you know, Ohio State or, or Duke or, you know, that level. Right. But, you know, I was hoping that I would really develop. I would get bigger and stronger. I was, I was thin. I was very thin. I probably weighed 160 pounds. I was, you know, became, in by my, by my senior year, I probably was 6'2", but I was very thin, weak. Um, and, um, you know, when it came time to, for the, at the start of the season, I found myself on a bench a lot of the time. You know, I probably... And you thought sp-
0: you put in a lot of work.
1: I put a lot of work in. I <laughs> thought I was the only guy on the team who could shoot. I really Had disagreements with the coach, Um, and uh, I probably started about a third of the time, maybe you know, maybe half third of the time. Didn't do that well, I wasn't scoring that much. I had a couple of games where I probably scored 10, 12, maybe at the most, if I was lucky. Um, But you know, the the crazy experience is that in those days, the um, Catholic schools would actually play the preliminary game before the Knicks. And oh. you talk about excitement. My junior year we played, um, uh, we played once in, uh, we played Cathedral, which was a school that always had a poor program, Cathedral of Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and we, we, our name was picked out of a hat or something, and we could select who we wanted to play, and we picked Cathedral. And the second year, <laughs> same thing happened, we got our name got picked out of a hat, and we, we picked Cathedral. <laughs> and Archbishop Molloy, they, they were, they got, their name got picked, and they were able to select somebody, and they selected oh. us. So, so so we played my, my, um, uh, my junior year, I got a little bit of playing time in the garden, which was a lot of fun. And then my senior year, um, I played against Cathedral and then we played against Malloy. And what happened was um, we were down by maybe 10 or 12 at halftime. And um, the uh, coach said, look, you know, what we're going to do is they were going to feed me. And um, the, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to try and catch up real fast. And I was the best shooter on the team. Mm-hmm. So the idea was come out the second half, just start shooting. Yeah, I was just, you know, just going to shoot. So I go out and I look at the basket. And you can't imagine what it was like 50 something years ago. You know, there, were, there were places on the floor where you'd bounce the ball, dead and the spots. ball would just be dead spots. And I'm looking at the rim that we're going to be shooting at, and I see the rim is tilted. To to the side, get out. So that on the right side, the the rim is sort of leaning. down. It's leaning down, and on the other side, the rim is leaning up. So I it's go like, out. It's like the I parks saying, I grew up playing in. Yeah, so so I'm standing there, right, and I'm putting. In, I got like I shoot like 15 in a row because it's like this is this is like a walk in a park, man. I, I can't miss. <laughs> Because the stupid rim is tilted, so we go down. So the game the game starts second half, and wait. So they were benefiting from. Was the other rim also as bad? No, no Okay, so, no. They so, they, benefited, benefited so they were benefiting from that. They well, the other rim was the other rim was fine, but we they had benefited from the first right, half. The first and half, and I'm, and I'm sure you know Jack Kern was their coach. I'm sure he was oh, sophisticated yeah. Yeah, enough he that. that he caught it, and he was scoring on. So I'm saying, like, oh man, this is great. So I go down. I'm standing. The guy on my team. Tommy Mullins is saying, I says, Tommy, get on the other side. The guy, they're going to feed me. He goes, what, are you crazy? He says, I want the tilt. <laughs> and I'm going down, and they're giving me the ball. I'm on the other side. He wouldn't move. And I'm going, I, I, and I do not want to call timeout. I do not right. know what to do. Right. So I'm standing, boom, boom, boom. I put up like five shots. Five times in a row, we go down. And it clank, 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 clank. So the point guard is my best friend. And so we come out. The coach takes us out of the game. He goes out. He says, sit down, you clowns. He really got mad. And my best friend said something he shouldn't have said, uh-huh. and the coach thought I said it. And it was like our third game of the year. Wait, when you and say
0: something you shouldn't have said, like...
1: It began with an F. Okay, okay. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, you can curse and, here, it's fine. All right, well, well you know, but so he... Um, and the coach thought I did it and and then my friend also threw a towel towards the coach oh, thinking, shit. and he thought that i did it so for the next few games after that i wasn't getting hardly any playing oh time. so he
0: didn't even talk to you about it he just no no the
1: coach didn't say wow. anything about it and the coach is still alive i still see him from time to oh, time good. God I, bless. You know, but, but uh i really uh was very upset so i had a mediocre senior year and uh we didn't make the playoffs when wait did. sorry
0: did mullins benefit from that was no, he getting no, fed he wasn't so what the hell man i don't know
1: i i really you know it's listen we're talking about something that happened 55 know, years know, ago it's hard to remember but but i do remember that pretty well and <laughs> mullen's father actually played he was an original nick he played for the Knicks in with the first year i think it was in 1947 1948 Damn. Damn. It wasn't like a big time player. I think he'd been a Fordham player back maybe before the war. Yeah. But was good enough to play in the Knicks. And Mullins was a great athlete, but was not much of a bit, well, whatever, wasn't much of a, he didn't like basketball that much. Right. But he was a g- really good athlete. Never played after, after you know, BC. I'm BC, I mean, after Zavarian. But But um, so, I, as I said, I had a pretty sort of mediocre season. I played against a lot of great players. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Mike Reardon, who played at, at, uh, at Holy Cross, who had a terrific cl- uh, career with the Knicks. He stood, he, his bat, These are the great Nick teams he played yeah, on. You know, yeah. when they won a, in 1970, the 1973, they yeah. won the championships. And he was on at least one of those teams. And what they would do is they would, they would put him in to commit an intentional foul. I forget exactly what the rules were, but they would call it get one or something. They would call yeah. it, and you could go and you could foul somebody. And so he would be putting. They put him in, give him some playing time, and he would just all he was was a guy to go in and commit intentional fouls. But when well, he got the ball, he started doing well, and he ended up, you know, he hit some. Probably he you know, did uh, average ten points a game. Some years he played. You know, after he got traded by the Knicks, he went to Baltimore, Baltimore Bullets in those days mm-hmm. they called them, and then they moved to Washington. So and his
0: he, int- his original foray into the, on the floor was the bruiser. The yeah yeah, and then he converted his game into he actually, got, being but he more, got the
1: playing time they recognized that he was actually he pretty do good and, yeah. uh, uh, but as I said we, we played against Kareem we played against well, it was a fellow named uh, Sonny Dove um, Lloyd Sonny Dove he played for uh, St. Francis Prep oh which Rich standing, brought
0: him up Rich yeah. mentioned him to oh me. he was
1: a great player he yeah. was just a great player I, I once when, when I was in high school when I was in college I predicted, so he was a year ahead of us and we, BC played against St. John's um, in the, in the uh, actually we played him in the uh, the, su- the Sweet 16 we oh, played okay. St. John's, we beat him down at the University of Maryland and Sonny Dove was playing for them and he was a great player, he was like probably second team All-American and I said look he's going to be the next Elgin Baylor, this guy's going to be great wow. and he basically, he had like a four or five year career I think in the NBA and really did not, wasn't a great player. Yeah. Tragically um, he got involved in, in in, in a business, isn't is the tragic part? He got involved in a business, and he he was funded by some people, and he was going to be the 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 owner and the the manager of I think a television station in either Texas or uh, Florida, mm-hmm. and it was at a time when it was the, the government was. Uh, Doing sort of minority re, re, you know, recruiting and trying yep. to get more minorities to own television stations. And Sonny, I guess you know, I didn't know him, but I mean, by all accounts, he was a very bright guy, and he was able to establish himself. And he was backed by some people, and he was going to take over this station. They had to get approval from the FCC. And in the mean that that year, he was a color guy. He was a color guy on the Saint John's games. Okay, and was trying to make some money. He was driving a cab. And he was at the 9th Street Bridge in Gowanus, uh, right near where I live in Park Slope and he tried to make it before the bridge you know, went up. It was a, a drawbridge there and unfortunately they, he went over the drawbridge and he went into the Iguanas Canal and died. I mean it's one of the, it's just such a horrible tragedy because here was a guy who was on the brink of really probably making a lot of money for himself, yeah. doing really well and, and I don't, as I said I didn't know him but everybody thought he was a great guy. Some of the guys I played with as a kid from the neighborhood played at St. Francis Prep and knew him and you know, everybody just thought he was great. So, wow. But he was a great ball player and then you know there were a lot of other guys who you know played in the NBA, had a cup of coffee or whatever, and uh, it, w- it was a lot of fun, you know, playing high school basketball. I wish I could have had a better career in high school. <laughs> but you so, had it
0: good enough where... Was, you were a walk-on at BC? So, yeah. So, okay.
1: um when I it's it's funny you know I'll mention names and you might not even know, I know. their names you don't, know but don't worry I love the, to learn um, if you go back to the fifties you know the the most exciting basketball player in the NBA back in the fifties maybe not the best but the most exciting and many said he was the best was Bob Cousy yes, who okay. played for the for the Celtics, Celtics. with Bill Russell and, he's from uh, Brooklyn isn't he no he's from he's from uh, Jackson Heights Queens. in in Queens oh, I'm sorry it was at Saint Albans I think he's from Saint Albans or okay. Jackson Heights he went to uh, um, Andrew Jackson High School oh, okay. and then to Holy Cross. And um, he was born in Manhattan. He was born on the Upper East Side, but then when he was, he was a teenager, he moved out to Queens and um, you know was just a, a great, great ball player. And when he finished playing for the Celtics, he was hired as a coach at Boston College and uh, coached at BC for probably seven years. And uh, there, his, his first recruiting class, I guess, were juniors when I was a, um, uh, when I was a freshman. And um, but he was recruiting. I mean, he was he was recruiting on a high level. And so when I went to BC, there were six guys in my year who Kuzi mm-hmm. uh, had recruited. One of them was Jimmy Cassane who um, played at Chaminade in Mineola. He played against me for four years in high school. He was in, in the Catholic League in New York. And uh, I remember when I met him, he, he was in my in my floor, my dorm, my freshman year. And he came up to me and said, hey, I didn't know you were going here. I said, you remember me? Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> we <laughs> became good friends. And then, of course, when I was on the team for a while, you know, I, I became even better friends. <laughs> So, so I mean, he he was one of those guys that was getting a lot of playing time. Oh, I mean he was okay. he was, he was like a you know star. when when Sport magazine used to pick the five best sophomores in the country, because in those days freshmen weren't eligible to right. play varsity, Jimmy Sang was one of the five best players as a sophomore. I mean he didn't he wasn't you know he's probably honorable to mention in the junior or senior year. Sure. Honorable <laughs> mention All American, but but he when he came out of out of Chaminade, he was first team All City with Al Cinder and a few some oh, of the big okay. name guys, but he was a great ball player. <laughs> and you know other guys who were, were on the team were really highly recruited you know all you know all state in the states they came from they were from Michigan two guys from Massachusetts one guy was a great player, Jack Cavans from Connecticut Eddie Rooney was from upstate New York and mm. I remember when I met Eddie Rooney he was Cassane's roommate and and uh, they were walking together and so Cassane says hello to me and he, I don't even remember my name and I you know and he said well this is Eddie Rooney my roommate and today and, and Eddie I would say to him you know, Eddie. When I first met you, I didn't know whether I should shake your hand or ask for your autograph because I've been reading about him. <laughs> right. that he was he was down to um, University of Kentucky or BC where he was going to go. And at the at la- that
0: time, Kentucky wasn't the country. Oh, it was big. It was still oh, big. Oh, absolutely. Actually, that's right. It was right. a premier yeah, it's, program. It's going kind back,
1: for up going back to the 40s. It was the premier right. program in the country. They had won more uh, NCAA championships than anybody. That's and what Pat, Pat
0: Riley went there. Pat Riley yeah, yeah, was, yeah. From,
1: was from the, the Albany state. area yeah. and was a year older than us and was assigned to recruit Eddie Rooney. And ah. uh, he and we were together at one of our reunions, you know, maybe 10 years ago. And he said, I said, do you think Pat Riley would remember you? He said, nah, I don't think so. I said, you crazy? I said, he was a kid. He was only a kid. He was 19 years old and you were 18 and he was assigned to recruit you and you ended up turning him down. Of course he's going to remember you. <laughs> yeah, of course you. he is. I saw him at a restaurant here, like right after Pat that, Riley? Pat or? Riley. Okay. And I, you know, I didn't bother him, but I was this close going over, to going over to him and saying, hey, excuse me, but I got a really good friend named Eddie Rooney, I bet you would have laughed. His he would have so. laughed, and he would have. I said, Rudy says you wouldn't remember him," and he would have stood up and said, "I remember I, that guy. You know, I'm sure that's would've. what he would have." But you know something, I just didn't want to bother him. Yeah, you I don't believe uh, so it. And so it was. But these guys were great. They were really, you know, they were six really, really terrific players. So I went out. Uh, I tried out for the team, and I was disappointed that I had been recruited yeah. coming out of out of um, out of high, high school. school. And you know, I mean, listen, I mean, I fortunately I was a good student, and you know, I was in the honors program in Zavarian, and. um uh, you know, Boston College was one of the best Catholic schools in the country. Yeah. I mean, it was Notre Dame, Georgetown, and Boston College with the three best. And I really wanted to go to Boston College. And the fact that Koozie was there really added to it. And I said, you hey, maybe I'll walk on. You never know. Maybe I'll develop. And I didn't know how many scholarship players they were going to have. Right. So I worked out a bit over the summer. You know, I had a summer jobs, so I wasn't really working out that much. So I went out. I went out for the team. So you and- were half
0: seriously considering, or not considering? You you were definitely seriously considering the opportunity to walk on. Oh yeah, but you. Yeah. I mean, like you saw a window of opportunity for that to actually happen,
1: right? I knew I'd have a I knew I'd have a window of opportunity if, if I at the tryouts if I got open I was going to hit jumpers. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, um, so uh, so I go out and I see that they got these you know they got six guys better than I am. Yeah, they were recruited by all over guys from all over the country, and uh, but I make the team and I remember when he posted it I was so excited that you know I, I made the team and. Um, uh, I thought there were two guys on the team, both from Massachusetts. One one guy was a big guy, the other guy was a guard uh, from from Worcester, Massachusetts. And and uh, I thought they were better than I was. So I th- I'm looking at it that I'd be like the ninth man. Mm-hmm. And um, so we go into the practices, and it, it, was, it was it was the Celtics were a fast break team, and so Cousy had this fast break philosophy. Right. And I probably weighed 170 pounds. Man, I I was down 161 pounds. I was so skinny from running, and running, and running. And that's all we did. And I'd come back at night. I was exhausted from the practices. And I'm like, I'm saying, I'm not going to get any playing time. This mm-hmm. is, you know, what am I doing this for? And, um, and I'm looking, I'm saying, you know, they got six guys in my year, and they got, you know, like, six guys who were a year ahead of me, and then the guys who were juniors are going to be seniors, and so what if I move, if somehow if I moved up as a sophomore and I was good, I still got, like, 18 guys who have been <laughs> recruited, and I'm not going to beat those guys out, so right. I'm not going to make the varsity, and, and I, it ain't going to happen. I mean, I did it for, like, a month and a half, and I just see I'm not getting any bigger than <laughs> stronger. I'm getting skinnier, And and all my friends, I'd never been away from home. It never did any partying or anything. Right. We went to an all-boys school right. and, and uh, you know all of a sudden the world opened up and all the guys in the dorms you know they were all going downtown Boston, living and going it to parties up. and everything having a great time and my eyes are bugging out of my head and they're coming back telling you know I'll come back for practice everybody's gone. Right. You know all my friends all the other guys I was hanging around with who weren't ball players and I said I'm missing out and first of all I'm not studying because I'm too tired I'm missing out on the partying scene and I ain't gonna get any playing time and so I went I went to the coach uh, Frank Power was a freshman coach and I I said um, could you um uh you know, I'd like to see if I get some money, you know. I mean, I wanted to see if it gave me a partial scholarship. Yeah. And uh, he said, yeah, we just can't do that, you know. He said, we'd love to have you play. I think you might be able to get some playing time. He, said, you know, encouraged me to stay on the sure. team. And I says, you know, I, I just don't think I'm going to do it. So I played two two games, two freshmen, two, like, pre preliminary games. Mm-hmm. And I took two shots in each game, jump shots, way outside. <laughs> Actually, from the corner. Well, Five-pointers? <laughs> <laughs> they were from the corner. It would have been three-pointers today. And I, I was one for two in, in the two games I played. So All I right. Scored two points in each game. Fifty percent. Not um, bad. Lowell Tech, I think it was, and uh, and Worcester Polytech, where they they were you know small colleges, and, yeah. and we played their varsities. They were, they were like Division three schools, okay. and, and, uh, um, and we killed them because our our. Six freshmen were phenomenal. Yeah, the team finished. I mean, it's if I I was interviewed by a lawyer's magazine one time and they asked me if I had any regrets in my life, and they thought I was going to say something about how I handled some cases. Yep. I said, yeah, the only regret that I can think of in my life is quitting the freshman basketball team at Boston College. I mean, I really, really kick. I'm kicking myself. But why?
0: So I, I can understand that, but also if you compare it, right? Like you, I feel like there was a level of maturity, which is rare to find for a 18 19 year old kid it's like
1: well I was 17 you know, even, even like, more that's what's the other thing that killed me because you know I was I was young when I graduated from high school yeah. and I should have been back a year but that's a whole other story because like
0: you were there to handle your business I mean they weren't paying you to go there you were coming out of pocket to pay tuition so you looked at you did the math really I I couldn't have done that I would have been there trying to figure it out on the basketball side, even if, like, that, that glimmer of hope.
1: Yeah, but there wasn't any glimmer. When I looked at the the fact that they were all Americans from, you know, I mean, Willie Walters played at the – Bishop Blockland was a year ahead of me. He was 6'8". You know, I mean, yeah. I'm not going to beat out Willie Walters. I mean, yeah. it was ridiculous. These guys were recruited all over the country. You know, they were recruited. These guys – and you know, my the guys in the juniors. Kuzi had six scholarship players, like, each year. And so I wasn't going to get any playing time. Yeah. So and then we keep guys coming up, you know, behind because it turned out there were only two scholarship plays in the year behind me. So maybe if I'd stayed with it, and, but I don't think so. But the team was twenty-two and zero. And, you know, there weren't any rankings. You know, they would be like informal rankings. Sure. It was probably the top, you know, top five programs in the country. And then when we went on, you know, when they went on and, and played varsity the next couple of years, we, we went to the, uh, the NCAAs twice. And that was when they only had 20 teams going to the NCAAs. Mm. We went to the, the Sweet 16 or, or the Final Eight. We lost to North Carolina in the Final Eight. So did and, you support uh, the team after that? Oh, yeah. I mean, you I, would, were kicking I went down yourself. to Maryland. I would travel around, ah. go to games to see them play. I mean, I, you know, they were my friends. They were your because, buddies. You know, and, you know, I played with them, like, you know, in half court. I'd go down and play with them. You know, sometimes we'd go play full court. So I would I would play with them. I'd still play, you know, sort of stay in shape. But uh, uh, I really supported the team. I was a real real fan of B.C. Damn. basketball. But, uh, but I, I really regret it. And the funny thing is, is that... You know, when when I tried the Boston College point shaving case, the tabloids in New York they got wind of the fact that I had played uh, freshman basketball, Mm -hmm. two games. But that didn't that didn't change their mind. You know, I by the time Jimmy Kassane, who was the All American in my year, he said to me the next reunion, he said, Man, if that game if that trial lasted one more week, you would have been an all-American. And he said <laughs> I can only imagine. And, and I was so embarrassed because I'm thinking, people are thinking I'm telling the reporters and I'm saying, Don't say that. Because my friends, the guys I went to school with, they know that I was, you know, I got I you had two co- games. I didn't even have a cup of coffee, I had a sip of a cup of coffee. <laughs> and I felt like an idiot. They're, to this day there are people. Who think that I was like a big time basketball? Yeah, player I mean Boston nobody college. writes about the actual specifics. Yeah, uh, so when I was, was looking
0: at it, I was like, damn! If uh, I hadn't spoken to you, I wouldn't have known. I no, would have I was, said the same it was, thing.
1: It was, it, was, it was, it's kind of embarrassing that it, 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 And um, but that's what the media
0: does. By yeah. the way, I don't consider myself media. Yeah, but so. that's how they do. They kind of take something, make it salacious, and run.
1: Yep. So it's uh, so so that was my my career as a basketball player. It's uh, it's it was a lot of you know a lot of great experiences, a lot of fun. Um, you know, we uh, uh, I got to play against some really good ball players and guys ended up playing college. A few guys played in the NBA and. Uh, you know, I think my experience in playing basketball, is, 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 I use that as a motivating factor. You know, mm-hmm. it's something to motivate me in trying to in, in trying to make something of myself as a lawyer and to be successful. You know, I'm a litigator. I'm not a corporate lawyer. You know, I don't do trust in estates. I don't do tax work. You know, I go to court. And... Um, uh, it's it's competition. It's just like playing basketball uh. and uh, and I sort of used that as a way to motivate myself, you know the experiences I had as a basketball player and the disappointment that I had. you know, I mean, I felt that my coach. Screwed up and didn't showcase me. Uh, didn't play me coach? more. My high school coach. Yeah. yeah. And I thought I should have played more. And I thought that if I had an opportunity, and because the way I could shoot, I think I would have done well. And uh, I was. Did very, you ever have
0: that conversation with him? No, no,
1: okay. no, no. Um, uh, although it's funny. I mean, I harbored all these really fear, bad feelings about him. Um, but I mentioned the tabloids. You know, when mm-hmm. even the, even the New York Times went out and, co- in, and interviewed him when I was trying the BC point shaving case, mm. and so the Times, the Post, the the uh, the Daily News, they all interviewed him. Wow! And man, he just lied. He uh. just lied. You should have seen you should have seen Victor. Oh my God! It, when, it, when it was crunch time, he had the ball. We always uh. knew he was the smartest guy in the court. He said all his stuff to make me. and well, I didn't mind anything. No, He's it looked done. good for good, you. you know? But the tr- truth be told, he wasn't playing me that much. know, yeah. yeah, so it was a big disappointment. But so I kind of buried the hatchet when he was saying all these good things. You're like, me, all right, you. we're so, kind of even. <laughs> so I saw him a few years ago. I was at a wedding, and he we sat at my table, and and, uh, and you know, we, we we had a couple of laughs, and, and I see him. i is done his varying game still, and once in a while, I'll, oh, I'll that's run awesome, into him. Man. Yeah. So, what was his uh, name? John Woods. John, John Woods. Woods. Yeah. All right. And, uh, in case I ever run into him. Yeah.
0: So, uh, so, so let's transition a little bit because, um, so the point shaving scandal. I know that's probably you had already been an attorney for a little
1: while, right? So I graduated. I graduated <coughs> from Zverian in 1964. I graduated from. Um, uh, from Boston College in 1968. Yep. And did I, did I say it's very 1964? Maybe, 64 is a 64 is a variant. Yep. Is a variant. Yeah, it's, in 1968, I graduated from, from, from BC. Uh, BC. Um, and then I went to Georgetown Law School. And ah. I graduated in 1971 to law school's three-year program. And, and then I came back to New York. I worked for a federal judge uh, in Brooklyn for a year. And then I joined the Manhattan DA's office. And uh, I worked there Fun for five times. years. And, yeah, I did a lot of street crime cases. And Was that...
0: Like, sorry. Was that your choice? Uh, obviously, there's choice <clears throat> in this. But... Because you specific... Not specifically, but for the most part, you're tied to a lot of mafia-centric uh, yeah. cases. Did you
1: actively seek to be a part of those yeah well when I graduated from law school I, I worked for a big law firm a big New York law firm in the Washington office and I had an opportunity to work there and I had opportunities when I finished my clerkship You know I did okay. I did I had good grades in law school I mean I wasn't you know number one in my class or anything like that or even you know in the top 10% probably right. but but I had good grades and I ended up getting a clerkship which is a prestigious thing to get when you get out of law school uh, was then and it is today and and um, Uh, So I had some opportunities to go to big law firms and, you know, make, you know, a significant amount of money, more than I would otherwise have made, but I, I, um, I had very sort of left wing politics, and I uh, was very much anti war and pro civil rights, and just you know was pretty much of a leftist. And I just had these attitudes that I didn't want to work for for a big corporate law firm like I ended up doing and like I'm doing now, <laughs> and um, uh, I wanted to do something public service. And some people said, well, you know, like prosecutors are not public service. You're putting poor people in jail. Well, not necessarily. Right. And so. Um, um, I went to the Manhattan DA's office, and I, I worked there for five years and got a lot of experience. And I always was really interested in 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 prosecuting public corruption and and prosecuting people who were swindlers and and the mafia. And I grew up in a neighborhood. I grew up in Brooklyn. You know, Bay Ridge was not a hotbed of, of mafia activity, but there were a lot of mafia people around. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the neighboring neighborhoods, you know, Bensonhurst and, and Borough Park and, and, and other neighborhoods, South Brooklyn, uh, were hotbeds of organized crime. So we knew, I knew what organized crime was, and I knew they were preying upon legitimate good people in neighborhoods and uh, that they were making money and had power that they shouldn't have, And, and I always had a distaste towards people who were corrupt politicians, and that's what I sort of gravitated uh, to, and Mm. and I got an opportunity to join the Federal Organized Crime Strike Force, which was a program that was really run out of Washington, out of the organized crime and racketeering section of Washington. It was sort of like the brainchild of Bobby Kennedy back in the early 60s, and the program developed and basically came into being in 1968, and so by the time I joined in 1977, uh, it was doing the kind of stuff that I really wanted to do, and and unfortunately. I was recruited to out of the DA's office in Manhattan to go to to join the strike force, and um, uh, I was I became the deputy. The, I was hired as a deputy. It's the number two guy in the office. It's wow. Sort of a fluke. I don't. Know, the, <laughs> the guy who Tom Puccio, who is the head of the office, just had some faith in me, and he hired me as the deputy. And um, uh, I was in the right place at the right time. I got to try and got the to, I investigated. I tried, and I did the appeals in a lot of really big cases. I mean, the biggest cases, or some of the biggest cases of the 80s, and uh, it was an unbelievably fortunate experience that I had to. To to be there when these cases popped up, It wasn't because of any great investigative skill or or legal skill that I had that I um, developed these cases. They, the the agencies are the ones that bring in the cases. Got it. And then you know, of course, you can flip people. You know, you can get people to cooperate, and you're working with the agents. You know, mostly from the FBI, but from the New York City Police Department and some of the other agencies. Um, and, you know, you can have some input into how the cases developed, but for the most part, they were cases that were brought to us by the agencies, and I happened to be, you know, the, the number two guy in the office, and then within four years, I became the head of the office, and I was able to, um, you know, handle some major cases myself, and and my assistants, the people who worked with me, I don't like to call them assistants, they were my colleagues, yep. uh, there were 14 of us, and... Um, uh, We, you know, the people who were there ended up working on some major, major cases and, uh, you know, going after the leaders of the five families and, uh, uh, you know, a lot of corrupt business people, um, a lot of corrupt labor union officials and a lot of corrupt politicians.
0: How, How do you guys go about selecting what
1: cases to pursue? Well, the cases are generally brought to you by the agencies. investigative agencies. And what you have to do is you have to you have to have some discipline because there were only fourteen of us and I remember when you know, my grandmother knew nothing about you know, she was not very well educated and you know, every time somebody would say something in the house, you know, she would, she would say, what are you making a federal case out of it? She didn't know what that meant, <laughs> right, right. but there was some truth to it. Because every time you bring a federal case, even if you think it's a small case, it seems like it ends up as a big deal. It goes up to the Supreme Court. I mean, I, so, you know, you have to be disciplined because you can get friendly with these agents, and the agents will bring your case that uh, doesn't belong in the program. So yeah. you have to be disciplined and say, no, we're not <coughs> going to take that. Then, of course, you will bring in a case, in a significant case, and somebody will flip. And like we were doing the Lufthansa robbery case, Mm -hmm. uh, which was a major case. But, you know, as you saw in the movie Goodfellas, Jimmy Burke and the people who were associated with him were going out and killing all the potential rats, all the potential cooperators. So we weren't able to we weren't able to convict anybody other than the Lufthansa laborer, Lufthansa employee. And after that, all the gangsters, it, it was, the, the road was blocked. You know, mm-hmm. the, the 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 links were all killed off. You know, off there were probably yeah. ten people who were executed. And so,
0: how, how real was the depiction of all that went on in in the movie Goodfellas to actual reality?
1: It it was it was reality. I mean, there were certain wow. fact, factual things that were distorted because you know when when Joe Pesci gets killed, I mean. The, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is the guy who killed him was, was maybe not himself, but John Gotti was the one who killed Joe Pesci, Got who it. killed you know, the Tommy D. Simone character. And if they put that in the movie, everybody would say, well, that's a lot of baloney. You know, they, they're using John Gotti's name. Yeah. But in fact, so there were some things that they weren't entirely accurate, but the the way that the life of a mafia gangster is depicted in the movie Goodfellas was just Spot, Spot on. on, wow! And it was just absolutely great. I mean, Nick Palletti wrote a great book, great screenplay, and Scorsese is a genius, and everything was depicted, you know, it, it, as far as I'm concerned, really accurately. So. It makes
0: it makes sense to me, just being the cult classic that it is. Um, it's good to hear that because it should be a cult classic, just given how true to form it, it tried yeah. to be. So that's good, because sometimes you, you, and I don't know, but you you see these other cult classics, right? They're, de- they're complete fiction at right. the end of the day, and they become these humongous things. At least this one is, is well, linked pretty Well, you know, it's, closely. It's, it's funny
1: because I, I, I look at Goodfellas and, and to a lesser extent casino when yep. I think that it's very accurate. Um, and Martin Scorsese, you know, has had a lot of acclaim for The Departed, and I look at The Departed and I just think it doesn't bring... True to life, it does. That no, one does. I just didn't think it did. There was just too much shooting at the end of the movie. Everybody's just shooting people in the head. You know, I thought yeah. it was kind of silly. And it turns out that he 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 was true to the script. It was a movie that was made in Hong Kong called The Departed. Oh, and uh, and he had it translated and he stuck to that script. Got he it. didn't veer from the script. I mean, that was what the contract was. Mm-hmm. So I felt that that was not so much true to life. I thought I enjoyed the movie. I yeah, think it was Jack a great Gibson, movie. and you know all the other great actors who were in it. Uh, it was it was an enjoyable movie. But I just said to myself, this is you know. Like Kind of crazy! One of my sons, we saw it in, in Brooklyn. One of my sons stood up at the end of the movie. and He just he stood up, and, he, and he's a quiet kid, and he just yelled out to everybody. Turned and, and he said, "This is ridiculous!" <laughs> <clears throat> and everybody started applauding. Now we were in South Brooklyn, and of course, the people who go to that movie right. knew it was a Scorsese gangster movie. Right, of, right. It was all guys who think that they know everything about organized crime, and they they they, they agreed with him. So, uh, but Goodfellas was was spot on. Yeah. so
0: so how did, so you talked about the you know, kind of the, the career path, you get to a point where you're investigating the New York uh, mafia family and there's a link to the B- B.C. case.
1: Right. So what happened was um, in 1978, the Lufthansa rob- uh, Cargo Terminal <clears throat> excuse me, was, uh, was robbed yeah. on a Sunday night so, or into Monday morning. And um, you know it was the largest robbery in the history of the United States. What was um, the what was the amount? Do you remember? It was, it was five million dollars in cash, which at the time was like an incredible, an incredible amount. Incredible but now amount. you guys on Wall Street is you're stealing billions, you know. But yeah. 6 million, $5 dollars million in cash, and they really couldn't pinpoint the amount of jewelry. It was around a million dollars. But some people were probably lying and said that they lost jewelry. Sure. Other people were probably bringing in stolen jewelry, yeah, and or they would bring it. They maybe they had bought it in, on a black market or something, mm-hmm. so there might have been some, some insurance frauds so it was never we never really had an accurate sense of, of what it was, but the estimate was around six a million dollars in jewelry, but it could have been more um, and uh, so it was a six million dollar robbery hmm. and um you know, the, the media really picked up on it right away, and they identified um, Jimmy Burke, the Jimmy Burke crew, part of the Lucchese family. Uh, Burke was not a, um, a made guy because he wasn't Italian, Italian-American, but he um, uh, he was—everybody identified him right away as being responsible for it. And he became a large in life figure. He was like a, a media darling, a cult figure, Jimmy the Gent and and— the, uh, the press was going crazy, and so law enforcement had some pressure, particularly the FBI had a lot of pressure on them to do something about it. I was assigned probably a week or so after the, the robbery okay. um, to be the lead prosecutor in the case. And it was because when I was in the Manhattan DA's office, I had a lot of experience doing uh, wa- reviewing wiretap applications. Hmm. So we knew that we thought we would need electronic surveillance in order to get the, the, the culprits. and um, uh, So that's how I was assigned to the case because of my expertise with electronic surveillance. So so the wiretapping never really led to anything. Um, and so quickly, we went on two, two tracks. We went after the inside man. We, I, we were able to identify the inside man. The, the agents were able to identify him pretty quickly. Right. We, so we were trying to get him to convict him and get him to cooperate. And then uh, we were going after the uh, Burke and the guys who executed the robbery. And pretty early on, we, we were able to convict, within three or four months after the robbery, we convicted Werner, Lou Werner, who was the inside man. He he wouldn't cooperate until you know a year and a half later after his conviction was affirmed. Maybe a year later after his conviction was affirmed, and by then it was too late hmm. because he because the guy who was his connection was killed the night that oh, Werner was with was the, the night that Werner was convicted. Frenchie and an, um, Joe Buda Manriquez was his was his uh, his contact. Burke had said you you're going to make out the you know the, the plans with this guy mm-hmm. Werner. And that night when Werner was convicted, uh, Manrique, Joe Manry, they called him Man Joe Manry and his his best friend uh, Frenchie McMahon were were whacked. And so that was the link to Werner. And so Werner didn't have anything to give up. And we were really going to a dead end. And the FBI still had pressure from Washington to try to move this thing and get Burke and get the people who were responsible. And they focused on Henry Hill. Mm-hmm. And Henry, Henry was a very close associate of, of, uh, of Jimmy Burke's. And what happened was a uh, Werner— <clears throat> was looking for somebody to, to do the robbery. Werner stole it from another, stole the plan from another cargo, another worker at Lufthansa. Really? A, a German national by the name of Peter Gruenwald. And he double-crossed him. He took the plan and needed people to execute the <laughs> execute robbery. Execute it. So, so what,
0: he turned to, to He
1: went to a low-level bookmaker uh-huh. um, and said, do you, do you know somebody who can do a robbery? He says, let me ask. The low-level bookmaker goes to a guy by the name of Marty Krugman, who, if you remember, the guy who ran the wig salon or the the, the hairdresser in the The movie movie, Morty. Mm -hmm. Um, Morty, The the low-level bookmaker goes to Morty, who was a big-time bookmaker, and says, do you know somebody? Morty's salon was next door to the suite, which was Henry Hill's bar on Queens Boulevard. Uh. Morty goes to Henry and says, You know, do you think you and Jimmy might be interested in this? Henry goes to Jimmy and brings it to Jimmy and says, Yeah, we're going to be interested in it. They thought maybe it'd be a million dollar score. It ended up that the Brinks truck was delayed. And they didn't. They they, they couldn't. They, they were running behind schedule, and they didn't want to wait in time to get the stuff from the Lufthansa cargo terminal. And they left the the five million dollars and a lot of jewelry there that they were supposed to pick up over the weekend. And um, so they expedited the plan really quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, but that's how Henry Hill was involved. Henry Hill was a friend of Marty Krugman's. Was, so it went from. The Lou Werner to the low his low level bookmaker we'll keep, you know. in, a, in a grocery store in, in Queens or or Canarsie, and he went to Marty Krugman who went to Henry who went to Burke right and Burke didn't let Henry go on the robbery but Henry knew everything about the robbery, uh. um, so. Henry becomes the target of an investigation in the Nassau County District Attorney's office um, concerning uh, drug trafficking that Henry was that Henry had become involved in, and he gets prosecuted by the the Nassau County DA's the uh, DA's office. And to make a long story short, we essentially stole him from from the Nassau County Nassau D.A. County. We grabbed him on a, when Henry got out. We grabbed him on what they call a material witness order. We arrested him. And like said,
0: literally when he got out.
1: He got he got out of he made bail oh, okay. he made bail and we had information that he was gonna become a fugitive because it was he was he was part of the Lucchese family. Mm-hmm. They had an edict against narcotics trafficking. Yep. So Paul Vario, who was Paul Servino in the movie Goodfellas, uh, Paul Vario had to had this rule and you know, the whole the five families had this rule if you get caught drug trafficking, you're gonna get whacked. Right. And because you're you're either gonna Either you're going to be in jail for the rest of your life, but if you are, you're going to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And so they were going to whack him. And Henry knew that, so we thought he was going to be a fugitive. We arrested him. And as soon as we arrested him, he turned. He just, and then we had to deal he, with he this. He had
0: the pressure on his back already.
1: Yeah, he thought he was going to be killed. Yeah. So, and he, and if he wasn't killed, and he, got, he was going to get convicted because they had wiretaps on him, so Nassau County said you could, you, as long as we can work with you on this thing. We ended up having some friction with them, and we just kept Henry for ourselves. And it was, I mean, it's an amazingly long story, but That's we ended crazy. up getting him, sort of stealing him right. from from the Nassau County authorities. And um, so, over the course of debriefing him. He knew everything about it. He knew Tons of stuff about organized crime. We used information from Henry Hill to get electronic surveillance orders, you know, wiretaps and bugs. We used them for search warrants. We used he was them the gift that did. kept on giving. He huh? was terrific. He really was terrific. I mean, he wasn't a made guy, but at the time, he was one of the most significant guys ever to cooperate. And in the course of debriefing him, he he. Uh, uh, you know, we, he was, we were trying to figure out where he, what he was doing, in, in the time around the Lufthansa robbery, mm-hmm. and the money that, that they were using for the BC point shaving case was a lot of it. Come, it was coming from the Lufthansa robbery. Oh. So they, the the robbery took place. I think it was December tenth. 1978 and the 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 B.C. season that which was in which the games were rigged was the 78-79 season okay so it was right after the robbery that Henry was up in Boston for the B.C. Harvard game which is part of the fix and so we're trying to figure out what Henry did in the days after the Lufthansa robbery And sure enough he gives up that uh, he was fixing basketball games. I was up
0: at BU. He, he, he said. said BU and
1: then and, and, you know and we sort of figured it out and, and uh, you know it, it's sort of a myth in one of of the things that that in the book that uh, that that led to the movie Goodfellas is a book called Wise Guy, and they made they changed the name of it for the movie because it was another movie that was already called Wise Guys, so or yeah. well, the Wise Guys, so they changed the name of, from the book. But in the book, the you know Nick Pellegrino has me going over the table and saying I'm going to grab Henry's yeah. throat and you know and go out, and it I really wasn't, but yeah, I thought at, at first. Did I you thought, give him a light smack? I, mean, I wanted to I, mean, I want to give him a smack for a lot of reasons but, uh, uh, but uh, so it was uh, so that's what happened so he puts it in our lap and so after that we just went out and did an intensive investigation you know in Boston in Pittsburgh where some of the players yep. we've dumped with one player was from Pittsburgh it's, and the guys from, was they came up with the idea the guys from Pittsburgh and then they needed muscle and they needed a network of bookmakers because um, there's guys, like a cousin
0: right, or something that's related to somebody that was in Pittsburgh from no
1: Henry Henry Hill was in prison with a guy by the ah, name of Paul Mazzy. Okay. And um, uh, when he got out of prison, he, that's how Henry got involved in trafficking narcotics. And so he was out of Pittsburgh as part of this narcotics trafficking they was doing. And Mazzy was friendly with a guy by the name of Perla. And Pearl had a younger brother who was friends with Rick Kuhn, who was a backup center on the BC the player. team. Right. And um, so the Pearlers and Mazi were leaning on Kuhn, and Kuhn more or less sort of was sort of lulled into sort of cooperating. First, he was going to give information, but then he said he would influence the outcome of the games eventually. And Mazzy was was sophisticated enough in the underworld to know that if you really wanted to have a point shaving scheme, you wanted to be successful, you got to get a lot of money down. But if they see that you're making a lot of money on B.C. games time after time, you know, they're not going to pay. The Bookmakers aren't going to pay you aren't going to pay you. So you, they needed New York, but they needed muscle, and he had Henry as a New York muscle. So Pearl and Massey came to New York. They met with Burke and they met with Vario's son and they met with a number of other people. And New York said, the Lucchese family said, "We'll back you. We'll put up the money. And if the bookmakers who are taking your action don't pay you, then we're going to threaten them until they pay you." Mm-hmm. And they were also setting up, you know, sort of a network of, of layoff bettors and guys accepting bets, and and so that way they were going to make more money. Uh-huh. And um, so. So that's how the it, it came into New York, um, and um, so Henry Henry tell so the first question we have well, one of the first question we have was was Henry says why are you interested in, in this this is not a crime yeah he didn't even think it was a crime it's <laughs> not a crime and was, well, this is a big time crime this is a big case and Do, uh, at the
0: time did you know how much money was involved in that. When when you're no. answering that
1: question, no, I don't think we re- we don't really know because we okay. don't know. Yeah, it's hard you know, to track because Jimmy would tell some of these bookmakers, you know, that the game was was fixed, and those bookmakers were probably betting themselves. Right, so oh, we wow. really don't know. It's an exponential you know, exponential. Yeah, wow. so we really don't know um, what the real impact was. They ended up they ended up that they I, I called them at the trial. They unfortunately for them for the for the for the betters they turned out to be the gang that could shoot straight. Because they were supposed to be keeping it under the margin of victory and under mm-hmm. the line and more often than not they were going over it. There would have been more than a point Jeez. spread. So the betters were losing we're money. Losing, yeah. So um <laughs> Uh, it was it was it was it was very interesting. The investigation was a lot of fun. And In fact, you know to this day, I mean, I've written like two chapters of the book, and I keep saying I got to get back to it. I got to get back to it, but I really want to write my memoir about how you know use it as a as a way to explain how federal prosecutors investigate cases with the FBI, yeah, and how we did it in that case. And there's a lot of you know a lot of really interesting personal stories and you know involving the people who were involved and in, in, a lot of human interest stuff. There's a book that's. Been written about it but you know well it is, is a summary of what happened in yeah, trial it doesn't and, do it all like, the perspective and you'll know, talk about my dealings with henry and my life with henry i stayed friendly with henry and in touch with him until he died and i wrote, i wrote his obituary for the uh, the new york post when did he pass yeah, i guess it was gee 7 years ago now oh okay yeah and and so, even, so he ended up in WITSEC and he was in WITSEC for just a couple of years oh. and then he blew it he just kept blowing his cover over and over <laughs> again and uh, <laughs> He's so crazy. He comes in here. He he he. Um, uh, at one point, the second place he went to was outside of Cincinnati in Kentucky, in the suburb. Kentucky is adjacent to the Cincinnati and mm-hmm. Ohio River, and um, he was living in Kentucky. And he was he bought some horses. What he was going to do is he was going to have a. Uh, Um, a tour thing where he had some old um, uh, sort of like uh, stagecoaches. Oh, okay. And he was going to have tourists. They would drive people around like a horse and buggy kind of thing. Like Central Park over here. Yeah, sort of like that. And you could, you know, and he had these horses that he bought to... um, uh, take people around, and he was just beginning to develop this thing when he ended up, he blew his cover, and he didn't pay for the horses, and he comes in, he says, you think you ever hear of this guy? Yeah, the guy, he's suing me, he, he, he's suing me through the witness protection program, and I says, <laughs> well, what are you talking about? He says, "I, ah, you know, I stiffed him on the horses, and I looked down at the thing, I says, John Y. Brown, I says, John Y. Brown? He used to be the governor of Kentucky. He owns the Boston Celtics. He was oh, a very wealthy guy. He shit. owned the Boston Celtics from that period in the early '80s. Yeah. I said you got to be kidding me, Henry. I mean, you just everything he did was a story, a movie. It was, it was, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> but it just, it just nutty, nutty stuff. And he, he's a character. But uh, you know, he had substance abuse problem, heavy drinker, narcotics of every different type. I mean, I don't even think he knew what he was taking half the time. But, it's uh,
0: interesting that you, you guys established a friendship. Uh, Through all of that, how does that is that common?
1: Well, I don't listen. I mean, I can't say. Maybe friendship is too strong. Friendship is. uh, Did I I like Henry? Yes. Did I respect him? No. I mean, I didn't didn't respect him. I mean, I knew that he was. You know, he was a guy who he would always say, "Well, I got this opportunity to do something. You know, like a TV show. You know, I really want you to get involved with me." And. You know, his first impulse was to be good-hearted. His second impulse was to forget about you, uh, you know. And in other words, if he, but if he thought through but his second impulse was because he was probably high on right, drugs. Right. So he was a good-hearted guy in many ways, but he was also a swindler. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, he stabbed a lot of people in the back. And, and uh, But you know, people often ask me about him, and I say what's interesting is that everybody liked him. The wise guys liked him, even though he was a hapless organized crime figure. I mean yeah. he was never all that successful in the things that he did. But Paul Vario was one of the major organized crime figures in the city and loved him like he was one of his sons, you know, or maybe a, maybe a nephew. Jimmy yeah. Burke was a major, major guy in organized crime, loved Henry. You know, wow. he was with him all the time, hung out with him. He had all these people in, in the underworld and in, in, in the world of organized crime who liked him. After he cooperated, they all him. Yeah, out, of them, course. But they all hung out with him. We get the, the pictures of Henry with everybody imagining. You know, sitting there, with you know, at parties and, you know, he was a guy who they liked. Um, but you put him in—you know, now he's cooperating with the government. The guys who ran the, the Marshal Service, you know, the WITSEC guys, yeah. they got the biggest kick out of this guy. The <laughs> FBI agents got the biggest kick out of him. He would drive you crazy. He would do stupid things. He would, you know, he would be drinking and then come in and you're supposed to cooperate and he's sitting there to be, you know, have a prep session and he'd be throwing up and, and you're, ready, you're ready to kill a guy. but. There was something about him that you couldn't help but like him. Yeah. You know, just you couldn't respect him. You knew what he was. Right. You knew that he was in They're many bad, ways he was untrustworthy. Yeah. And right. You had to keep on making sure that he was telling the truth and that you know that he was corroborated the things that he told you that it was back up for and uh, you know, you just had to really be careful to make sure that he wasn't going to go start feeding you information about things that he thought you wanted to hear that wasn't that those things weren't really true. true. So
0: as you look at the I uh, I find an interesting parallel here with respect to just the Boston point shaving case as kind of the product of what's happening with college athletes, right? Needing money, the NCAA and all all this about whether or not they should be paying athletes, etc. Um, that's the impetus for a college kid to say, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll consider doing point shaving or what have you because I'm going to get this X amount of money. As you look at it, and I know there's a lot going on, and I don't know how closely you follow it, but <laughs> the NCAA is being... Uh, kind of pressured into getting some sort of payment or some sort of uh, athletes getting some sort of of pay. How do you look at it, especially having that experience from from that case? Do you look at what the NCAA does as something unfair or something that they should really pursue and try to make amends with with athletes with? Or do you feel like the way they go about things is probably the right way to
1: go? You know, I think it's a very complicated subject. I think that in some ways, it is, it's is—it's a colossal it's piece huge. of unfairness yep. that you know coaches are making a million dollars a year, two million dollars a year with their sneaker contracts or whatever. Uh, they're making so much money, and the schools are making so much money. They get so much revenue, television revenue and everything else, off the backs of these kids yep. who, uh, well, they get scholarships. They're getting $40,000 a year scholarships and room and board. You know, so many of these kids are And a lot of times, they can't even utilize them because they're
0: playing the whole time. Well,
1: they're playing, and they're not interested in going to school. They don't think they're going to make it in the NBA. And only, you know, one in a hundred of of these guys who are good. Maybe even—it's less than that, guys who are college players. So few guys make it in, in pro ball. I mean, they can go to Europe and other places, but so few guys are making money. But they don't pay attention. Many of them are not really keeping up with their studies. Right. And the schools are it's, – it's a scam because they're not – they're passing these kids and they're not going to school. They're not yeah. getting educations. And then they, they, they get behind. And they, they – you know, once they finish their eligibility, a lot of them are not graduating. Yep. And so it's a tragedy. And um, so, you know, it, it, the, the fairness of it says they should be getting compensated. They should be getting something. I don't know how you'd go about doing it. Like, for example, if – the Ed McDonald of today walks on at Boston College yeah. and somehow makes the team, and he's the fifteenth guy on the team. Well, what are you going to do with him? You know, well, what are you going to do with the kid who was highly recruited, coming out of you know hotbed of basketball, and he you know hurts his knee. He continues to play, but he's not the superstar he thought he was going to yeah. be. And maybe he's ninth man. You know, his sophomore, junior, his senior year, he's barely getting any playing time. Well, what is it? he's not going to get paid? The walk on doesn't get paid. Well, how do you figure the superstar? Are you going to give him, you know, $100,000, $250,000 to play? I don't know how you regulate it. I don't know very what good you do. Point. But on the other hand, I think that it's really unconscionable for the schools to be getting so much revenue off the backs of these kids and then they could get hurt. You know, you yeah. know, look at Williamson last year, you know when he hurt his foot yeah. when, because the, you know because the sneaker, the blew sneaker. Off. Now, I mean, Mike Krzyzewski and Duke was pro- probably would make it a fortune using that sneaker. And getting given the publicity to Nike for that sneaker. And this kid, now look, maybe the sneaker was not poorly manufactured. Maybe it was just a, f- a freak yep. a- accident. And that you know, he's so big, he's so fast, he's so powerful. Maybe there's no shoe that would have been able yeah, to that protect could contain him. him. But yeah. he could have he could have blown his knee out. He could have been done. And while he was in college, making nothing. Yep. And so you look at that and says, okay. So I'm I'm going around in circles because I don't no, have an a, answer. It's a debate. I think for they sure. should get something. something. And I don't think the I don't think the free market uh, should have should really sort of dictate what they get. I think there should be some limits. On the other hand, maybe they should be permitted to market their names. You know, they could sell T-shirts or whatever. And, and, and uh, I don't know whether they should be doing endorsements. Right. Um, but, you know, if, self-promotion. Why, of should, their brand. why should the school be selling jerseys with the name of the player on there and the school makes the money and the kid doesn't make the yeah, money? So I think there should be something. Um, I think while all this is going on, I don't have any proof. This is speculation yeah, yeah, yeah. on my part. But but kids are going to be more susceptible to shaving points, particularly you know midway through the season when they realize, hey, this team is not going to the NCAA's, and you know, hey, truth be told. I, I ain't even gonna be playing in the Spanish league. You know, I ain't gonna be playing in the Norwegian <laughs> League. You know, it just ain't gonna happen. You know, my career's done. Right. And uh I might as well see if I can cash in a little bit, you know, and and you know, the guys on the team, geez, these guys are gonna be making multi million dollar contracts right. and I ain't making nothing. And some I gotta some give guy, money. you know, some guy who uh I know from home. You know, who was the bookmaker down the street or the drug dealer in, you know, in the neighborhood, those guys are leaning on me because they know I'm getting some playing time. I'm right. playing 20 minutes a game. I can affect and, the game. And I can affect the game. And um, so, you know, I gave off some $10,000. I mean, the kids in the BC team back in, you know, 40 years ago, however long ago it was now, um, you know, that, that, they were getting five thousand. Was it five thousand? Three thousand, I think. Three thousand dollars. Oh, a lot year. of money. It was a lot of money, you know. Stuff. But so five thousand dollars. You take a kid who's impoverished, and they say, "Well, you know, you got a scholarship, you know." But the kid's scholarship. Am I going to graduate from this place? Yeah. So he, he's going to be susceptible to that, I think. You know, maybe maybe it's not. Maybe the, you know, I used to go out to St. John's every year for seven or eight years. I went, and then I went to the Nike All American Camp. That's how I met Rich Kosick. Yeah. And. Um, uh, I would talk about you know how you have to be careful you know because look you got to recognize you're not going to play in the NBA you got to win there with that mindset even if you're a great player you got to win you know you might be you, you might be Williamson or you might be um, uh, Barrett yeah yeah Barrett you might be a superstar and you know all right well I'm special yeah and, and in fact Barrett's father I think was one of the kids was listening to me went out to St John's oh, his father funny. was playing for yeah, St John's yeah, yeah. I think he was one of the guys Rowan Barrett he was yeah a Canadian, he played for St John's yeah, yeah. and um, um, but the uh, you know I don't think that my going out there I don't I don't think that I never heard of anything going on at St John's right but my going out there I'm sure did not Ch- persuade Ch- them not Chains. to do you know, right. they shouldn't do it right so I don't know how you 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 enforce it I and mean, the kids is going to be susceptible to it it's it's uh, uh, it, it's 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 a tough thing so I, I would come down in favor of them paying them not. A thousand dollars a year. I mean, something right. substantial because they they they're, they they should be they bring in a whole lot of money. And I, but I don't know how you differentiate it's, between the star and and the fifteen. You guy bring up some team. really good points. Cause you have yeah. to factor all that in in order to
0: come up with a number that makes yeah. sense.
1: Now, you know, if, if you have, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, sort of joke, but, you know, w- well, what are you going to do if you have, a, you know, like two or three walk-ons are going to make the team and, you know, you're going to make $100,000 as a walk-on. I mean, I, I think guys are going to get stabbed in the back. they going to be killing yeah. on <laughs> campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Somebody's going to get smacked around for sure. <laughs> Well, Ed, man, look—it's been a pleasure. I thank you so much for sitting down with us and sharing your story. I know we could talk forever, yeah, uh, but I really appreciate you doing that. Now, and and to Mrs. McDonald, thank you for allowing him to be here with me. <laughs> I always got to give the wife props.
1: Yeah, okay. Well, she's she, she's probably ready to fall asleep now. Yeah? <laughs> we got five grandchildren. We live in Brooklyn, baby. We live in Brooklyn, baby.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Dribbling Dimes. If you like what you heard, please leave a review or comment wherever you're listening to us now. Check us out on social media as well. We're live on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. On all platforms, you can find us at D-R-I-B-B-L-E-N-D-I-M-E-S.